I know you as a congregation well enough to know that earlier when they announced the birth of our 10th grandchild, all of you were thinking, I, he's just not old enough to have grandchildren. <laughs> so you don't even have to say that at the door. I, I, I know that's what you were thinking. In, in John 17, we're, we're going to look at this week, and I just want to let you know what, what's going to be going on in the next few weeks, because actually we are uh, beginning Advent next week, um, and uh, we will begin an Advent series that uh, will be called Hallelujah, and it is uh, going to... Uh, be based, of course, this year our, our choir is uh, uh, presenting uh, the Messiah, Handel's Messiah. And so uh, in the various sections of Handel's Messiah, they were all based upon Scripture. And we're going to take the Scriptures from those various sections and uh, look at them in depth hopefully uh, only to enhance uh, when we enjoy the presentation of uh, the Messiah. And then we'll be back into um, uh, John after the first of the year. Uh, this is actually in liturgical terms today. is called Christ the King Sunday. Uh, Mark reminded me of that, of that this week, and it, you might have seen the theme with the uh, the hymns that we have sung, and so on. Uh, I can never think of uh, Christ the King Sunday without actually thinking of the very first time I had ever heard of that. And I was traveling to uh, India, but I was going to be in Pakistan for uh, several days preaching and teaching before I went to India. So I arrived in uh, Karachi at uh, about midnight in the airport, and by the time I was uh, able to find the person and the person find me, who I, I didn't know, um, it was about two o'clock when we were driving through Karachi, and uh, he said, uh, tomorrow... And it was going to be on a Friday because that's the day that they're able to worship. He said, uh, tomorrow we want you to preach in the morning. And uh, I, you know, when you go on a mission trip, I, I had a, a number of sermons with me. And I said, oh, I, I'd be glad to do that. And he said, and I want you to preach on Christ the King because it's Christ the King Sunday. And so uh, from about 3 o'clock to 5 o'clock that morning, I worked on a sermon on Christ the King. I think I had all kinds of sermons except one on Christ the King. But it's a, it's a, a great way, even as we enter into Advent, to, to focus on that. Uh, and this passage itself is fitting, even as a, a pre-Advent uh, passage in in John 17, Jesus had just finished his formal instruction of his disciples. Here's, here's the last thing that's recorded that he said right before the passage I'm going to read 
in a moment. He said, I've said these things to you, and remember we had several chapters of teaching, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I've overcome the world. So he, in one sense, finished his, his formal teaching of them, but he, he wasn't finished instructing them. Now, earlier in his ministry, he had given them uh, the sample prayer. That's what's commonly called the Lord's Prayer. We prayed it earlier today. It's, a, it's an example of a prayer. Um, this passage in John 17, uh, some would say that's more properly labeled the Lord's Prayer. And uh, some would also like to call it his, uh, his high priestly prayer. Uh, now, why do you think he's called our priest? It's one of the offices he fulfilled. We said this earlier in the shorter catechism. How did Christ execute the office of a priest? The answer was... Christ executed the office of a priest in the once offering up of himself a sacrifice to satisfy divine justice and reconcile us to God. That's what he was about to do on the cross and in making continual intercession for us. And that's what we're going to see in this particular prayer. And I want to give you one more label before I start to read it for this prayer that I actually uh, think is uh, a helpful label for it. Uh, some have called it Jesus' farewell prayer. So let's uh, read the first few verses here in John chapter 17. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God. And Jesus, whom you have sent, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's bow together. Lord, how amazing again it is to, to know that not only have you uh, preserved your word, the accounts of what took place 
but words that were spoken. And miraculously, by the power of your spirit, you have preserved them accurately. And now, we're going to get to, to listen in to the Lord Jesus speaking to you. Will you teach us of that? Teach us of you? We would pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. So we're going to look at just uh, this, this first brief section today, and then after the first of the year, we'll have to come back and, and uh, review that again. But the first thing we're going to see is Jesus praying for himself. Now, look at what he says. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. So he, you know, typically we're going we're gonna to close our eyes and bow our heads. There's nothing wrong with that posture at all. His posture in this case, and we don't know that this, it was always the case, but he looked up to heaven. And he says, the hour's come. The hour has actually come. Throughout the gospel, uh, we see over and over uh, him saying the, the hour's not here or this happened because his hour had not yet come and now it's actually that time, Father, that we had planned for from the councils of eternity it's actually here. I'm, I'm facing it. Have you ever uh, anticipated something for a long time? All of us have in, in, in some way, but, but thought about something and either in some cases dreaded it or looked forward to it with such anticipation that when the time actually came, it was almost surreal. You know what that feels like. And here he is saying, okay, Father, the time has come, that which we had planned for. And then he, he gives his first petition, his first request is to pray for himself. Now, some might say, well, I thought he was praying for us. Isn't that the idea of an intercessory prayer? Don't make the mistake of thinking that there's something, something selfish about this. Because if, if what he prayed for here was to be fulfilled, it would be for the benefit of, of his disciples and for our benefit. So even though he was praying for him himself, the benefit was totally for others in this. So he starts 
Uh, and, and verse 1 and 5, it's almost bookends here, and uh, he says uh, down below, And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had before the world existed. So this word glory or glorify, uh, I didn't count them, but uh, it's mentioned 42 times in uh, the Gospel of John. Now, I only tell you that because that shows uh, that, that this is a, a theme that is, is in there. It started in the first chapter of the book, John 1, verse 14, which, by the way, we looked at last year at Advent. That's how we began our John series, was with an Advent series in John 1. But here's, here's what he said, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. We have seen his glory, glory as the only Son from the Father. Now notice, here he's asking for that same glory. So, Think in terms of the incarnation that Jesus, when he, he came to earth, he didn't quit being God, but he did leave his place in heaven and he took on human flesh. And that, for him, was humiliation. We talked about that earlier in the catechism as well. For the Creator to take on a body of His creation is humility. Theologically speaking, we call it humiliation. And so he's saying, okay, the hour is here, and, and the glory that I'm asking you for is that ultimately... I will be restored to where I came from, to the glory that I had before. Now, let's think for a minute. How, how did the Father answer that prayer and glorify Christ? Let me give you five ways. We could probably preach a whole series on the way the Father glorified Christ. But, but let, me, let me just give you five ways that, that I see very quickly that he answered this prayer. The first one is the father gave him the strength he needed to go through the arrest, the trial, the crucifixion, which fulfilled the will of the father. He gave him the strength that he would need. In the garden, we, we hear him praying, and it's almost as if he's wondering if he's got that strength that he needs. Secondly, the father accepted his sacrifice on the, on the cross. That's how he glorified him. Now, how do we know that he accepted that sacrifice? Well, thirdly, because he resurrected him from the dead. Jesus didn't stay dead, he walked out of the tomb. And then fourthly, he received him back to heaven. So he answered the prayer in that way. When Jesus ascended into heaven, the Father answered his prayer. In, in all of those, 
the Father saying, you've asked that I glorify you, yes. The answer is yes to that prayer. I will glorify you. And then there's a, a fifth way, a further way that I, I'm convinced God answered, the Father answered that prayer to Jesus. And that's the existence of the church. The church exists because Jesus died for her. The church was purchased with his own blood and it will continue until he comes back for her. And the reason the church continues is the Father is glorifying Jesus in it. Jesus is glorified in the very existence of his church. Now next notice uh, the authority that Jesus possessed. Look at, look at his prayer, verse 2. Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all uh, whom you have given him. Over all flesh. Well, that's the idea of Christ the King Sunday. Uh, that's, that's the idea of uh, joy to the world, the Lord has come. Whether or not the world acknowledges he has authority over this entire world. Speaking of him as the king of all mankind. The, that term flesh there, uh, sometimes in scripture that means the body. You know, the body we think of as, as the flesh. But here I think a better interpretation is him having uh, authority over those who cannot save themselves. Now let's think about that for a minute. Sometimes when people think about sin and think about salvation and they, they say, yeah, well, of, of course, you know, we want to have a relationship uh, with God. Well, what effect does sin have on that relationship with God? Well, for some, they want to say, well, yeah, it, it, it diminishes maybe our capacity to seek God. No, it's way more than that. It's not that it diminishes our capacity and, and we can still find God if we really work hard at it. Ephesians 2, verse 1 says, here's what sin does. You were dead in your transgressions and sins. So what it's saying is that, that because of sin in all of mankind's life, and that's one thing that, that no one is immune to, because of sin... All mankind is dead, and their only hope is for one to give them life. That's the only possibility. It's not work harder. Working harder will not achieve salvation. So here's the point. God gave him authority over us, and it includes this, to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. 
Now, who's that? It's talking about his people. It's talking about the church. The biblical term is, it's the elect. Of all whom the Father has given him. This was taught earlier in the Gospel of John. In John 6, verse 37, it says, All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I've come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up in the last day. Jesus is about to complete that work. And he will do it by the authority given to him by the Father. And then he speaks of the nature of eternal life. And this, he says, is eternal life. Now, before we look at what it is, we need to understand what eternal life is not. Uh, Eternal life is, is... is not just a fountain of youth. Um, All will die physically. We all die. For the believer, it's also not just about being reunited with those we love who have already died. Now, I don't want to diminish that thought I say that in every believer's funeral because that's, that's biblical. It talks about a great reunion that uh, we will experience when Jesus comes back. And that will be a wonderful thing. It will be a wonderful uh, thing that we will enjoy, and that is seeing those who had like faith that have gone before us and us being reunited with them. But don't make the mistake of thinking that that's going to be the best part about heaven. I think sometimes people tend to think that. Oh, you know, the best part is I'll see fill in the blank. Well, if you've thought that, then you are severely underestimating the glory of Christ and what it will be like to be in his presence. That will be a million times better even than the wonderful uh, product, uh, side product of being with those who have gone before us. And so that's, that's what we need to understand in terms of eternal life. Now back to eternal life. Um, The only place we'll find life is in the one who said, I'm the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. So he talks about eternal life. He says, uh, uh, he's already uh, made the statement. He says, here it is. It's through Jesus. And, And here he gets even more explicit. He says, it's knowing the Father, verse 3, this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God. He's, remember, he's looking to heaven toward the Father. So he says they've got to know you, and you are the only true God. They can't know other gods that, that they've 
put together or that they think are God's but aren't. Those can't help them. So that's one aspect of it, knowing the Father and knowing Jesus Christ. Verse 3, this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Now let's talk about uh, the idea of knowing the Father and knowing Jesus Christ. This is such a key because, sadly, through my ministry, I have known far too many who thought they were saved, but probably were not. Why is that? Because there's different ways of knowing God and knowing Jesus Christ. J.I. Packer perhaps wrote the what, at least what I would think of as the most definitive work on this called Knowing God. And in his, in his first chapter, he says this, one can know a great deal about God without knowledge of him. In other words, they can know a lot of things about him, facts about him, even things from the Scripture and that doesn't necessarily mean they know him in a saving way, in a relational way. And then the second thing uh, Packer said in that first chapter is one can know a great deal about godliness without knowledge of him. He points out back in the 17th century, uh, theology was basically every gentleman's hobby. Now, I, you know, I don't know how many gentlemen there are anymore. No, I, I don't know how many would say that that's their, their hobby. But apparently that's, that was the case. But what, So apparently guys would sit around and drink their drinks and smoke their cigars and talk theology. That's what guys do, right? Isn't that, that's what guys do with their hobby. And, but a lot of them didn't really have a relationship with Christ. And that's, that's the danger. You can learn a lot about the Bible by studying it. You can have an interest in Christian history. You can even get to the point where you can render your opinion in public about God. You can even get to the point of teaching or even preaching without necessarily knowing Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Now, that's not to scare anybody. That's not the point. I don't, I don't ever want a true believer to, to uh, come to St. Andrew's and, and have their faith shaken. But neither do I want one who doesn't know Christ to leave St. Andrew's feeling safe when they've never really met Christ. So we see in verse 4, then Jesus did what he was sent to do. I have glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. 
We glorified and accomplished. Here's what we need to know about how Jesus glorified the Father. Part of it was the very fact that he accomplished the work that was given to him, and he perfectly accomplished it. Let's go through that. Didn't begin with his work on the cross. That's, it's, that's not the totality of his work. In fact, his, his, that's what, where it culminated. If everything that went before it had not gone before it as it did, then him dying on the cross would have meant nothing. It begins in the councils of eternity when, when he chose his people. He said, for them I will die. And then with the incarnation, him taking on flesh, being born under the law, and then it continued throughout his life that he perfectly lived without sin, fulfilling the law perfectly. Any any sin on his part would have ended any possibility of salvation for any of us. And then his obedience continued all the way to the cross. And when he died, it completed. It was completed. In fact, that phrase on the cross, it is finished, was the word that means paid in full. It's finished. He had accomplished what he came to do, what the Father gave him to do. J.C. Ryle said, He did what the first Adam failed to do, and all the saints of every age fail to do. He kept the law perfectly and brought everlasting righteousness for all them that believe. Now back to the essential question. If eternal life is knowing God the Father and knowing Jesus Christ, how can I know that I really know him and not just know about him? Let me go back to J.I. Packer. He says, the test is this. The God of the Bible has spoken in his Son. The light of the knowledge of his glory is given to us in the face of Jesus Christ. Do I look habitually to the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ as showing me the final truth about the nature and the grace of God? Do I see all the purposes of God as centering on him? In other words, it's all about Christ. And then he talks about the Calvary solution, Calvary being where the cross took place. And he says that's our only hope right there. And if that's the case, then I can know that I truly worship the true God, that he is my God, and that even now I'm enjoying eternal life that will last forever. Here's how Jesus put it. This is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Let's bow together.
Lord, we are fully capable of kidding ourselves, fooling ourselves about whether we really know you or not. We're able to fool others. But we cannot fool you. And so, Lord, I would ask that for those that are here that don't really know you, that know, know a lot about you, that can converse about you, but have never really trusted in Jesus Christ alone for eternal life, that, that you would reveal that to them. Not to force them into something, but that at least they would be honest with where they stand before you. And Lord, for those that, that are ready, that desire you, it's only because you've given them a new heart. Help them, even now, even today, to trust in you alone. And we pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.